First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Take your Bibles with me and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, just to kind of remind us where we are in this uh, story, maybe if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we have been walking along with this man named David, a man that God called a man after my own heart. Now, the part of David's story that we are looking at here today is long after the prophet Samuel had anointed David, uh, symbolizing that one day he would be the next king of Israel. This is long after David, as a boy, uh, slew the giant Goliath with just a sling and a stone. This is after many years that David had been on the run from King Saul, who was jealous of him, was chasing him all over the wilderness. This is even after King Saul has died and somewhat has cleared the way for David to become the next king. But what we saw last week was that David's own tribe, the tribe of Judah, had anointed him king over Judah, but he wasn't yet king over all of the tribes of Israel. And that's because, as was read for us just a moment ago, in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, went and took the only remaining son of King Saul, this man named Ishbosheth, and had made him king over the rest of the tribes of Israel. So this is where we are. We have David, who is king over the tribe of Judah, and we have Ishbosheth, who is king over the rest of the tribes of Israel. And these two kings, and these two armies, are about to go after it. Uh, but before we jump into that story further, let's just pause. Let's ask the Lord to be with us. And Father, we do thank you for your word today. We pray, Lord, as we study it, that you who have given us this word and inspired this word would speak to our hearts, Father. Would you give us ears to hear you today, hearts to obey you, that we might trust you, that we might follow your son Jesus as our king. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past summer, I had the chance to go with some of my family to Ecuador on a mission trip with our church, and it was just an amazing experience uh, to be able to go there. One of the things that we did on that trip is we helped run a, a camp uh, for about 300 children from the jungle, and, and uh, those who were leading that camp, uh, the staff down there in Ecuador, just did an awesome job making it fun for the kids. We had some competitions that we would do. They broke us up into different teams, and uh, even those of us on the mission team were kind of divided up on those teams with the children. One of those competitions was done out on the rec field, and when I say rec field, it, was, it wasn't like, don't imagine like a grassy plain. It, it was more uh, a field covered in rocks, all right, was all it was. And uh, one of the competitions we had was a tug-of-war battle uh, where you had to hold on to an inner tube for dear life and try to pull the other team across the line. I think we have a picture of, of one of those battles going on right here. And I'm there in the gray shirt at the front of the line on the left-hand side there, and I'm holding on for dear life and going against someone, I think, far younger and far stronger there on the other side. And, and, uh, but we were doing okay for a little bit. We, I was pulling with everything I had, but then my feet just slipped right out from underneath me, and I hit the deck. And uh, I think we have a picture of that also here. Yep, there it is. And... Um, and I probably should have let go at that moment, but, but I didn't. And so they just dragged me all the way across uh, on the rocks and cut my legs all up to pieces. Uh, I, I was resisting. I was given all the resistance that I had, but maybe you've heard the expression, resistance is futile. 
And that was certainly the case there. It was futile, my resistance. It made no difference at all. And you know, this part of the book of Samuel is somewhat like that round of tug of war. A lot of people in this story are resisting David becoming the king of Israel. We're going to see that today. People resisting him in a lot of different ways. But in the end, we know what's going to happen. Because God has already said what's going to happen. We know that David is going to be the next king. And so they can resist all that they want to. But resistance is futile when the Lord has already made a promise. Here's the thing. It isn't just King David that people resisted back then. People today resist David's future son, King Jesus, as well. Jesus is the king of kings. He is God's eternal son. He has died for us. He has risen again. He has ascended to the Father. He even right now is reigning at the right hand of the Father. And one day he is going to return. And yet many people today and maybe even some in this room are resisting the rule and reign of Jesus over their lives. But resistance to King Jesus isn't just futile, it's foolish. Because he is the king forever and ever, whether we would have him or not. And so what I hope we will discover this morning as we look at this part of David's story is that there are three kinds of people who resist the reign of the king over their lives. We're going to look at kinds of people who resisted David's reign back then. And we're going to think about how we resist the reign of Jesus in our lives in the very same ways today. And so first off, the first kind of person I want us to see are what I'm calling the fighters. The fighters. Some people actively oppose the king. And Abner is a great example of that kind of person because he does all that he can to oppose King Jesus. As we said earlier, he is the one that goes and takes Saul's son Ishbosheth and anoints him and makes him king. And, and really, as you go along here, you can kind of tell that, that really Ishbosheth is really more of a, of a puppet, that Abner is really the power behind his throne. In verses 10 and 11, it tells us that Ishbosheth reigned for two years, while David reigned for seven and a half years in Judah. Now, the truth is, we really don't know where Abner's or where Ishbosheth's two year reign kind of fits in in the chronology of David's seven and a half year reign. It could have been at the beginning of that time, could have been towards the end of that time. But we know during this whole time there is a struggle that is going on between the house of Saul and the house of David. And in verse 12, these two armies and these two kings are about to collide. And so let's read what happens starting in verse 12. 12 of chapter 2. It says, Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin. Followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. 
Therefore that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So these two armies meet by this pool in Gibeon. And if you trace it out on a map, you can tell that Abner's army traveled a lot further to get to this town of Gibeon than David's army did. It's clear that Abner is the aggressor in all of this. As they're sitting there by that pool, Abner is the one in verse 14 who suggests that maybe some of the men could get up and have a little competition. And the word that he uses for competition there is <coughs> excuse me, a word that normally... Uh, is defined as to play. It comes from the same word as a word for laughter, and uh, it's suggested that perhaps he was wanting some type of a tournament, much like you would see in a medieval tournament. I don't know if you've ever been to medieval times. How many of y'all have been there and been able to eat one of those turkey legs and cheer for your night? Well, that's what Abner is doing. He's sitting by the pool, gnawing on his turkey leg, and he's taking in the action as 12 guys from Saul's army, or from Ishbosheth's army, and 12 guys from David's army come together, and they have 12 little one on one battles that are taking place all around them as the rest of the armies are watching. And yet, what we read in the next verse is that all of them kind of got the jump on the other one at precisely the same time, and all 24 of them were stabbed simultaneously and fell down dead. And so if they were hoping to avoid an all-out war between these two armies by this little exercise, uh, they really didn't accomplish a whole lot, did they? (laughs) Because nobody won. They were all dead, all 24 of them. Uh, The only thing that really did accomplish is make all the rest of the soldiers very mad at watching 12 of their friends die on each side. And so verse 17 says, A fierce battle broke out between these two armies, and David's army won. But more on that in a minute. Because starting in verse 18, the narrator wants us to focus in on these two particular guys in this battle. One is chasing the other one down the road. And if you're a fan of action movies, this scene right here would make a great scene in an action movie. Look at it with me, verse 18. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Azahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then can I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. And so it was that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell dead and died, stood still. I know that there's some parents who are probably horrified that their kids are hearing this story right here in the Bible. And, of course, if there's boys in this room, if there's anything about my boys, they're probably saying, cool, I didn't know a story like that was in the Bible. And maybe some of the girls are saying, gross, I didn't know a story like that was in the Bible. And yet here it is. And, and so verse 18 introduces us to these three sons of Zariah. We find out later that Zariah was David's sister. So these three sons of Zariah were actually David's nephews. Joab, his commander, Abishai, and Asahel, the guy who gets killed in this scene. 
And we're told that Asahel was fast. He was uh, like, like gazelle fast. He was the Hebrew version of Usain Bolt. And so here he is, and he is chasing after Abner down the road. And, and, and it's kind of comical because Abner is running, and Asahel is chasing him. And Abner knows that he can't outrun Asahel, but he also knows that he's a better warrior than Azahel is. And so as he's running down the street, he's turning over his shoulder, yelling out things to Azahel. First he asks him who he is, and he tells him. And, and then he suggests to him that perhaps he should uh, step aside and maybe fight with somebody else and try to take their armor from them instead of trying to take him down. Essentially, he's saying, why don't you pick on somebody that you have a chance with because you don't, you don't even want a piece of me, right? This is a little bit of Bible smack talk going on here. And then uh, but he doesn't do anything. He just keeps running after him. And then in verse 22, Abner tries one more time. He says, Asahel, I don't want to kill you. That's not going to make things good for me with your brother Joab. And so I really don't want to do that. And he's implying, but if you keep on running after me, that's exactly what I'm going to have to do. And then, because Asahel will not stop, Abner pulls out that old trick that maybe some of you have pulled on one of your friends or your brother or sister before when they're chasing right behind you and then all of a sudden you put on the brakes and they run into your back and they fall down. Well, that's basically what Abner does here, but as soon as he puts on the brakes, he also thrusts backward his spear and Azahel running at full steam runs right into it and it pierces him through. And if this story makes us want to stop and look in horror, it did the same thing to those in that day. In verse 23, it says, The people who saw Asahel on the ground stopped and stood still. And then from verse 24 on to the end of the chapter, it tells us how this battle ended. Joab and the rest of David's army pursued Abner and his army. But finally, in verse 26, Abner calls out and he says, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? It's kind of ironic that Abner is the one trying to call this battle off when he's the one who really got it all started that morning to begin with. And yet Joab relents. And Joab blows the trumpet. And essentially the two armies go back home. Abner and his men go back to King Ishbosheth at Mahanaim, and Joab and his men go back to David in Hebron. And if you're looking for the box score for this battle, it's there in verses 30 and 31. It says David's side lost 20 men, and Abner's army lost a lot more, 360 soldiers altogether. But even though this was a W for David's army, losing Azahel, losing David's nephew was a big loss and his death would play a big role in what happens next. I think what stands out to me most, though, in this whole story that we've looked at so far is everything that Abner does to try to fight against David, to try to fight against David becoming the king. It, it's Abner, again, that makes Ishbosheth the king. It's Abner that gets his army together and travels all the way to Gibeon. It's Abner that morning who suggests that they should get this fight started. And, and here's the thing. If we're tempted to think, well, maybe Abner didn't know about God's promise to make David the next king. Well, that kind of thinking, really, you can throw that out the window when you get to chapter 3. 
Because in the verses that were read earlier for us, there's this part where he gets mad at Ishbosheth and decides to switch sides from his side over to David's side. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But in the middle of that speech, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter, chapter 3, this is what Abner says. Abner became uh, angry, and in verse 9 he said, May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. So what is Abner admitting to in the middle of this tirade against Ishbosheth? He's admitting that he knew all along. That he knew all along about God's promise to make David the king. And yet this whole time he has been rebelling against that command, rebelling against that promise. Instead of joining David and helping David to become king, this whole time he has been setting up a king of his own choosing. Now why would he do that? Clearly he did not want to follow David. He wanted to be the kingmaker. He wanted to be the power behind the throne. As we'll see in a minute, I think he had designs on the throne itself. But the bottom line is he didn't want to follow David as king even though he knew David was supposed to be king because he did not want to give up power or control. And the same is true today when it comes to how a lot of people, and again, maybe some in this room, respond to the son of David, King Jesus. Many people reject Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord, not because they don't know who he is. Not because they don't know that deep down he has the right to rule and to reign, but simply because they do not want to follow the truth. Listen to this. Many people know who the king is and still don't want him to be king over their lives. Maybe you've been coming for a while now and you, you are convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. You are convinced that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know that he has the right to rule and reign over everything and that includes your own life as well. And yet up until this time, maybe you would admit that like Abner, you have been actively resisting the rule and reign of Jesus in your life and you've been trying to keep him at a distance and you know why that is the case. It's for the same sinful reason as what Abner was doing here. Because right now you aren't willing for Jesus to sit on the throne of your life. Because you're not willing to dethrone the person who is sitting there right now. Which is you. There's an old classic gospel tract called the Four Spiritual Laws. A little, little booklet that many people used and some still do to tell people about Jesus and, and how he saves. And there's a couple pictures in that booklet that have always stuck with me. And you, you, can see them, you can see them right here. And the picture that's at the top of the slide there, it's a picture of the life of an unbeliever. It's called the self-directed life. That, that chair represents the throne of our heart. And you see the letter S there that represents self. 
Before we come to know Christ, that's how all of us are. Self is ruling and reigning on the throne of our life. And notice that Jesus, it's pictured by that cross, is outside of the circle of our life. And yet when a person trusts in Jesus as their Savior, there is a dethroning that takes place. The bottom picture there, the Christ-directed life, you notice that the cross is now on the throne, that Jesus is seated there, that he is ruling and reigning. And notice where the S is. The S is bowing at the foot of the throne. Joab, or excuse me, Abner told Ishbosheth that he was going to do all he could to help transfer the authority from the house of Saul to the house of David, just as God had promised. And you know, there needs to be a similar transfer in each of our own hearts. There needs to be a transfer of authority, a transfer of the throne from ourselves ruling and reigning to Jesus Christ being enthroned there where he belongs. But again, it isn't enough just to know what's supposed to happen. Abner knew that much, but yet he fought actively against the reign of Christ in his life. Now, there's other ways of resisting as well. Some people are fighters, but other people are users. Some people try to use the king. And we'll see that as we look at the next part of, of chapter 3. I don't, I don't want to skip over verse 1, though, of chapter 3. It's a really important verse. Look at that with me. It says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So what this tells us is it wasn't just this one battle that settled the issue between Ishbosheth and David, but rather that there is a series of, of skirmishes and battles that take place over a period of years. And we're not told about all of those battles in the pages of the Bible, but we are told of the final result. We are told about what was gradually happening over time, that David's house was getting stronger and stronger. And Saul's house was getting weaker and and weaker. And we could have predicted that, right? Because again, God had made a promise to David that he would be the king and he would be. It was God's will to bless David, to bring him to the throne, and it would happen. And in the same way, friend, every promise that God has made to you and me in Christ will happen as well. Verse 6 down to verse 21 of chapter 3, which was read for us earlier is essentially the story of Abner getting mad at King Ishbosheth and deciding to switch sides and to support King David. Verse 6 says that Abner was strengthening his own position within uh, the house of Saul. And while not everybody agrees with this, I think that Abner had designs on the throne itself. And I think that because of what verse 7 says, that he became intimate with one of Saul's concubines, a woman named Rizpah, and it may seem a little strange to us, but in that culture, to take a former king's concubine for yourself was a power play. It was a way of announcing that you were going to sit on the throne next. Later in the story, David's son Absalom does the very same thing when he tries to usurp the throne from his father. 
And here, Ishbosheth knows what Abner is up to, and that's why he gets so mad at him. He may be weak, and he may just be a puppet king, but he's not dumb. And he knows a power play when he sees one, and so he calls him out. He says, why have you gone into my father's concubine? And, and in verse 8, Abner responds to that, and you can tell he's pretty hot and bothered that Ishbosheth would dare call him out and, and question him. And so this is where he announces that I'm going to switch sides from the, from the Yankees to the Red Sox. And everything I've been doing to try to help you, I'm now going to do to try to help David. And he's going to be king, just like God promised, from the far north of the country in Dan to the far south of the country in Beersheba. He says, I'm going to make it happen. And so in verse 12, he sends messengers to David, and he says this. He said, whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. Now, when he says, whose is the land, it's a little bit unclear what he means. He may mean that the land belongs to David because God had promised David the kingdom. He may also mean, on the other hand, that the land belonged to him and that he had the power to be able to get all of Israel to follow David as their king. And David responds favorably because he knows that this could be a way that God was going to bring peace to Israel. But David isn't dumb either, and so he does something that tests Abner's loyalty and also puts him in his place. And he tells him, you cannot come and see me unless you bring my wife Michael with you. And we read about some of David's other wives in verses 2 through 5. Michael was actually David's first wife, and Saul took her away from him out of spite and gave her to another man. And now he's asking for her back. And he ends up bypassing Abner and taking his request straight to Ishbosheth. And Abner is kind of reduced to this middleman status. And yet Abner carries out what David asked him to do. He goes and gets Michael from her husband. And verses 15 and 16 is just this pitiful, sad scene where Abner is taking Michael away from this man. And this poor husband is following along behind her and weeping as he goes. And finally, Abner turns around and says, buddy, you need to go home right now. And so he turns around and goes back home with his, his tail kind of between his legs. And, and we feel sad for this man and bad for him. Of course, we do need to remember that his marriage was illegitimate to begin with because really Michael was David's wife and should never have been taken away from him in the first place. In verse 17, Abner starts doing some politicking for David. He starts going around to the different tribes, trying to garner support for him. He's wearing David is king buttons on his lapel, and he's doing all he can to rally the troops. And then he goes to see David, and he promises, I'm going to do it, David. I'm going to get all of Israel to follow you as the king. And so David sends him off in peace to do just that. But as we'll see, Abner doesn't make it very far. Before we hear the end of that story, I do just want to point out that when we think about Abner switching sides from Saul's side to David's side, it's pretty obvious as you read this that he did not have some enlightenment. He did not see the light. He did not have a great awakening or anything. He didn't do it because he suddenly loved David or because he loved the Lord so much. He did it because he was hacked off at Ishbosheth. And as he did it, he basically was saying, well, fine, loser, if you're going to be like that, then I'm going to take my talents to South Beach, right, to, to Hebron, and I'm going to help David become the king, and you're going to rue the day that you ever chose to mess with me. And I think 
Maybe Abner could see the way the wind was blowing. Maybe he knew that he wasn't getting anywhere with Ishbosheth anyway, and he wanted to play for a winner. Maybe he thinks if he goes off to David and if he helps David that he'll get to become David's number two. Clearly, he thinks he can play the role of kingmaker for David, and David will forever be in his debt. And so again, like everything else with Abner, it wasn't about David, and it wasn't about God. It was about Abner. It was about what was best for him. Abner was a user. Abner tried to use God's king for his own gain. And Abner wasn't the last person in the history of the world to do that. You know, in the New Testament, there's a man named Simon the Magician who's very similar to Abner. He thought that he could buy the Holy Spirit in order to be able to do powerful things and earn a reputation for himself. And people would think he was somebody great. And there's users like that still today. People who come to church not because they love God, but because they think it's good for business because they want to keep up appearances. There are even pastors and ministers today who, as Paul said, think that godliness is a means of personal gain. People may not see through it, but God always does, because as he said to David years before, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so, friend, as, as God looks at your heart and my heart today, does he see that we are authentic today? Or does he see that we are users, like Abner? We've looked at two kinds of people who resist the reign of the king in their life, fighters and users. But there's one more kind of person we need to see in the last part of this story, and that, that's the glory hogs. The glory hogs. Some people care more about their own glory than they do for the glory of the king. You can really see that in the last part of chapter 3. Look with me at verse 22. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he has already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. When Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers from Abner who brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper or who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. 
Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So in verse 22, after David has sent Abner away on his mission to go and round up all Israel to follow him, some of David's men, including his commander Joab, come back from a mission that they had been on. And in verse 23, people run up to Joab and they say to him, hey, Abner was here and made all nice with David and David has sent him away in peace and Joab is none too pleased about that. Because until recently, Abner was the commander of the enemy army. And also this was the guy who put a spear through the midsection of his brother Azahel. And so for all of those reasons, Joab cannot believe that David has done this. So he runs into David's presence and he's just angry. And he says, David, you do understand, don't you, that he is just a spy. That he just came here to spy on you and to find out every movement that you're making. And then... Joab goes out, and unbeknownst to David, he sends messengers to call Abner back. And because Abner had made a covenant with David, he probably assumes that David had sent Joab with some message for him. And and so when, when Joab calls Abner over for a private conversation in the gate, Abner doesn't suspect anything. He thinks he has nothing to fear. He thinks that Joab just had a little message that he wanted to give him, and he did have a little message he wanted to give him with the sharp end of his sword. And right there in cold blood, Joab killed Abner for taking the life of his brother Azahel. Before that happened, the narrator told us three times that David sent Abner away in peace. The storyteller wants us to know that David had nothing to do with what Joab did to Abner. And really, that's what the whole rest of this chapter is about. It's about demonstrating to everyone and to all of Israel that David was not behind this murder of Abner that Joab had committed. And so that there are four, uh, basically four things that David does to demonstrate that. The first thing that he does is he curses Joab and he curses his descendants after him because of what he did. The second thing he does is he basically plans the funeral for Abner and he commands Joab to dress himself in sackcloth as if he was mourning for the person that he just killed. And then, at the funeral, David basically gives the eulogy and laments the fact that Abner would die in a way that was beneath him, in a way that he did not deserve. And then fourth and finally, David fasts the rest of that day. The people try to get him to eat, but he won't eat. And so everybody knew, because David did all of these things, that Joab had done all of this without David's approval. I love what verse 36 says as well. It says, now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. Boy, you know, if that's true when it comes to King David, how much more true is that going to be of King Jesus? Whatever he does is pleasing and right and good for his people. But going back to Joab for just a minute and what he did here, I, I believe this, and many Bible scholars would agree, 
that Joab did not just kill Abner to revenge his brother's death, although that was a part of it. But I believe a part of the reason why Joab did this was because he saw in Abner a military leader, a rival, who could take his position in the kingdom of David away from him. And I think that was at least a part of what motivated him to do what he did and to take Abner out. And and that's why I say that Joab was a glory hog. He cared more, I believe, about his place in David's kingdom than he cared about what David, the king, wanted at this particular point in time. And we see the same thing in the heart of Jesus' disciples. As Jesus was nearing the time that he would go to the cross, the disciples were sitting around arguing about what? (laughs) Arguing about their place and which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said, no, that's how they do it in the world. But it's not going to be that way in my kingdom. In my kingdom, whoever wants to be the greatest should make himself the servant of all and give his life away just as I'm about to. And I'm afraid today that many of us still fall into that very same trap because we care oftentimes more about our own glory and more about having our own ego stroked. We care more about our place and our preferences than we really care about what our king really wants. We can still be a Joab today. But in the end, it's just another way of resisting the reign of the king in our lives, in our families, and in the church. And so how do we respond to this story that we've looked at today? What what should be our reaction as we consider this story? I want to share two reactions that I think we need to have in response to this story. First off, we need to fear God because the king is coming. You know, no matter how much people tried to work against it, no matter how much they schemed or plotted or planned, David was still going to be the king over Israel. And in chapter 5 of this book, the throne will finally be his. It was going to happen. The kingdom was going to come to God's anointed kingdom because God promised that it would. And, And again, the same is true when it comes to King Jesus. He is the king, and the king is coming. And people are still plotting and planning against him. Again, we do that as individuals. We resist his reign on the throne of our hearts as individuals. But again, that's happening in the culture as a whole. As the prince of this world, the enemy of our souls, is doing all he can to keep this world under his sway. Psalm 2 says the kings of this world plot and plan against God and against his anointed. But Psalm 2 goes on to say that God who sits in heaven will laugh at them. Because nothing that anybody does is going to stop Jesus from returning and from ruling and reigning. This is how John put it. This is what he saw in his vision in Revelation. He said, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, this truth should cause us to rejoice. But for those who don't, this should cause us to fear. And this should cause us to humble ourselves and bow our knee to King Jesus because he is coming. And we all need to be ready to stand before him. That's our first response. This should be to fear God. And our second response today should be to worship God. Because our king 
is a merciful, merciful king. Now, the very last verse of this story, King David wants to distance himself again from what Joab and his brother did to Abner. Look at that verse again, verse 39. He says, and I am weak today, though anointed king. In other words, I'm not in a position yet to really do much about what Joab has just done. But look at the rest of this. But the sons of Zariah are too harsh for me. The word means too fierce, too cruel. David would go on to say that a couple more times in the book of 2 Samuel about his nephews. It was clear to David that they did not have the same merciful heart that David had. And reading about this reminded me of a time in Jesus' ministry when he distances himself from a couple of his disciples who were acting too harshly as if they were the judge and jury over other people's lives. The story is in Luke 9, and here, here is what it says. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way to the cross. He stops off at the Samaritan village, but they will not receive Jesus. They will not receive Jesus' message. Verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? That's kind of a Joab-like response, isn't it? This is part of what earned James and John the title, the Sons of Thunder, because they wanted to bring down the boom on people who wouldn't believe in Jesus. Verse 55, this is how Jesus responds. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then he went on to another village. You know, because of our sin against God, the Bible says we deserve death. We, we actually deserve what James and John were asking God to do. We deserve fire to come down out of heaven and consume us all. But aren't you glad, church, that Jesus is a merciful king? Aren't you glad that he isn't like the sons of Zariah or the sons of thunder? Aren't you glad that Jesus went to the cross and took the judgment that our sins deserved so that we could be forgiven? Because he didn't come to destroy our lives. He came to save them if we would turn to him in faith. And so above all else today, as we think about our great king, as we think about King Jesus, our response should be to worship him together. Let's pray.